Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Previously on There Goes the Neighborhood. The fact that the real estate market is so profitable has provided additional incentives for every type of scammer uh, to come in and try and take advantage of it. Now we're seeing some of the same predatory actors trying to get people who may not know the full value of their homes to sign over their property for either less than the value or unknowingly sign it over for nothing. Somebody's getting a million dollar property for nothing. It just raises so many red flags. You sold Granny House, this is Granny House, Granny ain't dead. I had one guy says, yeah, we heard your house is in foreclosure. I'd be willing to take it. I'll give you 50000 The guys actually write checks. They will invite themselves in your home and present themselves as your friend. Sometimes it's very targeted when they see that there are homeowners who are facing foreclosure. It seems that some people may have stolen it. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm an editor at The Nation magazine. And this week, my WNYC colleagues and I take a look at a whole different aspect of this gentrification thing. Those of us for whom it's not such a bad thing. It's funny, though. I was in the bodega recently, and and, uh, this woman was actually really given a gentrification rant and how, you know people the devil and all this kind of stuff and, and they shouldn't be in this neighborhood and she could tell she was a, definitely a renter who's you know getting kicked out that's morgan muncie a longtime resident of bed-stuy who owns a few properties there and who sells a great many of them as a real estate broker her friend was saying i love it you know the more the merrier and she could tell her friend was the owner of a house you know <laughs> so it's kind of like my property value just went up Morgan, who is black, occupies a unique corner of the realtor game. Most of his clients are aging black women who have owned in the neighborhood for decades and have decided to cash in and take off for warmer climbs down south or back in the Caribbean. As Jim O'Grady and I walked around with Morgan one afternoon, he pointed out the homes of bed black gentry. I don't know them, but what I've heard, they're new couple, very professional, actually, I would call them black gentrifiers. You know, I think they're physicians. They're very cordial, but they're not in the gossip of the, of the mix here at the block. Next door to that, it's a lady who, she'll never let you in her house. I think she likes the gentrification, actually, uh, secretly. She won't come out and say it, but she, I think she loves the change of the neighborhood. You know, but the people who, who love it won't say anything about it. Like, I should say they love it, but they love the change. They love, they love the amenities that it's going to bring. They love that they're going to get, like, you know, the street won't be bumpy. Because, unfortunately, it's sad, but, like, in New York City, if the white woman calls and says, I have a pothole in my street, it's going to get fixed quicker, I think, if, compared to, like, if Miss, you know, Miss Betty calls. Morgan leads a popular tour of bed historic homes. 60s? He's a bit of an encyclopedia uh, you know, on the topic. Everything else came in the 1880s and 90s, you know, so these are kind of like, this is like the land that, Farmers, just old New Yorkers. And between the tour and his real estate sales and his own property, he's developed a complicated relationship to all this. For one, some people think he's a bit of a traitor. It comes at me more actually when I give walking tours. 
it's so funny actually when we see a, a person of color we're like oh, thank god so now the neighborhood doesn't think we're like showing white people how to take over the neighborhood because that's what they see they see me like walking and they see them looking around and it's pretty much all of it's architecture all white people you and a bunch of white people most of the time it's like and that's what they say oh morgan's you're showing the white people the neighborhood to take it over you know i've gotten people who said that to me you know you're recruiting them you know <laughs> and sometimes he kind of agrees with them it's hard On one hand, he sees a parade of white buyers walking into his office and the price is shooting up and thinks, wow, this historically black neighborhood is going to be a whole different place pretty soon. On the other hand, he looks at these black retirees who invested a long, long time ago and thinks, let me help you get yours. For African-Americans who are ready to retire and and live an easier, warmer life. But then you get to the open houses and... There's really rarely that you get people of African descent coming to an open house. I feel like I'm staring at the black people when it comes to my open house. Like, oh, wow. You know, like, haven't seen you in a long time. It's kind of like, you know, I live in Iowa someplace. It's a little bizarre here. And you're uneasy about that, right? It is a little bit because you're like, wow, can I get one black person even to make an offer? You do wonder, like, are the prices so expensive that now that even black people with money don't want to live here anymore? You know, it's... It's strange. I don't know. (laughs) As a result of all this, whenever he gets hired to sell a house, a familiar little dance begins. He uses a recent example to describe the process. A 65-year-old woman who's lived since she was about two years old on Decatur Street, a comically gorgeous street of brownstones. She's ready to retire and head south, so she hires Morgan, but with a warning. She says my neighbors are going to be very upset with me, and and she says she's going to get cussed out and yelled at and sure enough everything she told me is going to happen happened what did people say how dare you move why are you leaving us like this you know who's going to buy the house so at first the seller is a pain in the ass she turns up at the showing despite him begging her not to do so and if she overhears something she doesn't like from a particular buyer she shuts it down she didn't say i don't care how much money they had they're not buying my house but then ultimately the inevitable moment arrives not just a sale but a bidding war in this case, the buyers were a young European couple, and she let them buy it. For her, it wasn't so much it was like a white thing. It was more like, how well are you going to treat my home? But for the neighbors, it was a white thing. For the neighbors, I think, for sure. Even though it's funny, because a lot of them who were yelling at her actually ended up putting their houses on the market, too. <laughs> That's the final step in Morgan's bed sales dance. The neighbors pulling him aside to discreetly ask how much could he get for their old house. And that's what we're talking about first today. Investments, new and old, that pay off financially, but maybe don't always feel right. Or at least we don't know how to feel about them. And what those of us who find ourselves on the winning side of the gentrification ledger owe to our neighbors who don't. First, Rebecca Carroll introduces us to a young woman who's literally grown up alongside Bed-Stuy's rising fortunes. My mom owned a bookstore on Lewis between... Decatur and McDonough, so I spent a lot of time on that walk, kind of riding my bike up and down the street with friends and things. So people are always just around. Meet Corinne Bob-Semple. She lives on one of the most beautiful streets in all of Brooklyn. Her parents own a Victorian frame house on McDonough Street in Bed-Stuy's historic Stuyvesant Heights. We sit on her stoop to talk, and I cannot lie, I am ridiculously envious. The block wins the Greenest Block Award from the Brooklyn Botanical Garden pretty much every year, and it feels both welcoming and cloistered like a secret kingdom of black people and magnificent houses. It's a kingdom Corinne has not taken for granted, and one that, like so many other Brooklyn neighborhoods, is changing. Fast. 
I definitely felt like there was a very strong black community of people just always around me and supporting me. And I still feel that, like, if I were to call on a lot of, like, my old neighbors, like, they'd be there for me and my family. But I feel like there's not really a lot of spaces for that anymore. I think, like, that's what the store was and what Lewis Avenue was, at least for me and, like, the people I hung out with. Corinne is now 14. The store she's talking about is Brownstone Books, which her mother, Crystal Bob Semple, owned for 10 years. When she opened the store in 2000, it was the first bookstore in Bed-Stuy in over 30 years and quickly became a beloved staple in the community, hosting monthly book clubs and hosting frequent neighborhood events. Crystal, who is a trained urban planner, studied gentrification and historic neighborhoods. She opened the bookstore with the specific goal of creating a gathering space to help sustain a cohesive community. Um, I love my school, so I guess I'm like pretty biased. <laughs> Corinne doesn't go to school in her neighborhood or in her district. She goes to St. Anne's, the elite private school in the affluent neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights. Known for its unique arts program and independent curriculum, it's been ranked the best school in the country. It's also where Lena Dunham went to school. She says her mom couldn't find the kind of school she wanted for her kids in the district. So both Corinne and her brother Colin attend St. Anne's. It's a really great place to figure out what you love and like how to find the learning that works for you. Corinne says she has a broad racial mix of friends, but when it comes to the subject of gentrification, it can be a little awkward. It's funny because there are a lot of people from my school who are now moving into the neighborhood, and there is like definitely some resentment against them. Sometimes I feel like they almost shouldn't <laughs> come here, but I'm trying to be more open in the way that I think about it. And being open about it means being clear about what it is and what it isn't. Just the other day, I was walking with my friend. We were doing kind of a walking tour of the neighborhood. And we were just walking really, like, far into Bed-Stuy and realized that things are very different in, like, this part of Bed-Stuy, Stuyvesant Heights area, than others. She says there's definitely a gap. And it makes her feel uncomfortable. Because I feel like I should be able to relate to people of my own race. I don't know why. Like, I feel like that's something that's really important to me. A sense of community based on place. And in Bed-Stuy... That community has, for a long time, been made up of mostly black people. But now that money is becoming more visible and central to who gets to live where, it's affecting that community feeling. Like, not everyone can go to a cafe and buy something that's really expensive and, like, kind of sit there. Do you think they want to? I'm not sure. I mean, that's one of the things about gentrification that is so striking to me, is that it's so particular in its aesthetic. I mean, does that appeal to you? Do you feel like you want to be there? I feel like I would, just because I kind of, I'm really into aesthetics. Like a lot of black middle-class folks, both young and old, Corinne struggles with the constant influx and changes that gentrification brings to the neighborhood, while also staying grounded in the community and appreciating her own good fortune. It feels like a privilege, but it also feels kind of like a responsibility to talk about these things and find some way for this, like for gentrification to not completely take over Bed-Stuy. And like, even if like, it ends up being like I'm the last one here, like that like we can find some way to like stop that. Around the corner from Corinne's house is the Brooklyn Movement Center, where she's working on her own story for our own WMYC's Radio Rookie program. She's interviewing a range of teenagers in the community about gentrification. Not surprisingly, the white kids have a pretty different take on the subject. They have very interesting ideas about what gentrification is. Um, one person told me that it was white people coming into the neighborhood and basically making it more beautiful just by their presence. <laughs> and did you challenge that at all? 
in the moment, I just felt really uncomfortable, and I didn't know what to say. So not really, and I wish I had. What would she have said? No, period. (laughs) The Brooklyn Movement Center is run by Mark Winston Griffith, who knows a thing or two about gentrification, not just in Bed-Stuy, but in Crown Heights. He lives in the house formerly owned by his grandmother. He and his wife are currently raising their family in that house. His grandmother and her sisters came to New York as young women from Jamaica to work as seamstresses. They first settled in Harlem, and then in the early 50s, they moved to Crown Heights. From what I understand, the woman who owned the home prior to her moving there, a Jewish woman, actually was the one who held the mortgage for the house. The woman who owned the house was the bank. Which is pretty amazing to think about, especially given the history of predatory lending and foreclosures and scams specifically targeting black homeowners. We reported on it in the last episode. Mark's grandmother, her children, his parents, and now he and his family managed to avoid all of that, thanks in part to one woman's generosity. And as black people in this economy, they now have a legacy of wealth. My grandmother moved there at a time when banks were not making loans really to black folks in the neighborhood. And so that's why it was so important that the woman who owned the house was the one who essentially gave her the mortgage. My grandmother got sick. The house was left to my father. And I ended up buying the house from my father for no down payment. And there's no way I would have been able to buy that home otherwise. I didn't have to jump through the hoops that a lot of people end up having to go through in order to acquire a home that can oftentimes come with abusive and and, and predatory terms. He began working in financial justice to help black communities avoid being targeted and later co-founded the Central Brooklyn Credit Union. He continues to be active in social justice and fights against the displacement caused by gentrification. His good fortune is not lost on him. I'm very conscious of, I would almost say, the responsibility I have to hold on to it for future generations of black people and, and people who are in my family. But it's a privilege for Mark that comes with a certain measure of anxiety. People who are living in central Brooklyn are now, if they're homeowners, they're millionaires. But we are very lucky, and anything can happen to us. I could lose my job, or something could happen to to me or my wife. But if the family were to face that kind of crisis, at least they have the house as a safety net, an asset that they can leverage or, at worst, cash in. It's not something they want to do, of course, but that wealth is precisely what allows them the relative security of middle-class life. I don't take this home for granted whatsoever. And the people now who have been here for generations, they certainly deserve what they have, but they're not better people or they're not more worthy of these riches we have. We didn't necessarily work any harder. We just came in at a moment when it was possible, or we came in under conditions when it was possible. And those conditions are just are not there for middle-class black folks. Like Mark, Kierna Mayo lives in the Crown Heights family home she grew up in and took over the mortgage of her parents, who are now retired and live in the Virgin Islands. She's the editor-in-chief of Ebony Magazine, the quintessential black American publication. She says growing up in the neighborhood, the streets weren't safe enough for young kids to trick-or-treat, and she'd gotten used to taking her own kids to neighboring Park Slope to celebrate. 
maybe two or three Halloweens ago, I realized that the Black Association was now filled up with the, all of these white women and their white children. And I was like, who are these people? Where do they come from? Well, of course, trick-or-treating has certainly picked up in the neighborhood, and now it's become quite a thing. Kierna says this observation is something to reckon with. When white folks are not there, there's an absence of so much that you end up going to another neighborhood just to trick-or-treat. That reticence you hear when Kierna and Corinne talk about the white people moving into their neighborhoods, it's rooted in part in something they don't say, which is it's not like black people have ever been able to just live anywhere we want and feel at home. That used to be a matter of law, but for many, it remains a matter of money and unspoken boundaries. One of the people we interviewed talks about this. Lance Freeman is the director of the Urban Planning Program at Columbia University and the author of the 2006 book, There Goes the Hood. Views of gentrification from the ground up. Historically, focusing on the African Americans for now, there's been this feeling that we've been confined to certain neighborhoods and had to fight to acquire whatever space we did have. And then there's a sense that if that's lost, we're not necessarily welcome somewhere else. And so people, I think, feel somewhat defensive around the community. Feeling defensive around our communities. That's something humans all over the world can relate to and something we need to find a way to talk about. Our story of Trankalina Avalar, the tenant who fought to keep her Williamsburg apartment despite developers' attempts to get her to leave, garnered a huge response. Hundreds of you left us comments on our Facebook page. Here's what one listener had to say. As a native Brooklynite, this is so disheartening. Miss Avalar's story is a sad reality for so many of us New Yorkers. And it seems like the city does nothing to protect us. It continues to cater to the likes of developers and urban sophisticates, pushing the rest of us to the outskirts of the outskirts, and continues to give huge tax breaks to developers for quote-unquote affordable housing. You know, those developments with the 100 units that only contain 6 to 10 affordable units? I'm sure Jane Jacobs is turning over in her grave. I'm Kai Wright, and this is There Goes the Neighborhood from The Nation magazine and WNYC Studios. So we like to think about gentrification as something that involves monolithic blocks of people. Renters, homeowners, infiltrating hipsters, preying real estate agents. But so many of us are anchored to multiple, often conflicting identities. The lines we draw in the sand aren't always helpful. If gentrification is complicated as a theory, it's nothing compared to how it plays out in our individual lives. A lot of the time when we talk about the changes in Brooklyn, there's a sense that there is a larger phenomenon outside of ourselves. No matter our race, our class, or politics, it can be hard to come to terms with the part we play in that system. D.W. Gibson introduces us to a couple of new arrivals in Bed-Stuy who share their own struggles with gentrification and their role in it. Emily Wilson and Ali Lalonde share an apartment in Bed-Stuy. It's in a new building and the place is in mint condition. Most importantly... It's a far cry from the apartment where they lived in Crown Heights. We had a really, really terrible landlord situation. (laughs) That's Emily. She came to New York 10 years ago from the suburbs of Baltimore. Also, there was no heat, and it was January. And that's Allie, who proudly hails from Toronto. When the heat went out at the old place, she called the landlord. He didn't respond, so after 10 days, she bought a space heater and took the cost out of the rent. She says the refrigerator didn't always work, neither did the oven. And they frequently heard squirrels between the walls. 
than the last straw, I think. We got bed bugs. Emily says the landlord was unresponsive to calls about the bed bugs, so they hired an exterminator. When they deducted the cost for two exterminator visits, because the bed bugs were still there after the first visit, the landlord finally called them, and he was furious. Allie remembers starting the conversation about finding a new place. We know that it, in the grand scheme of things, we weren't being harassed. People have had far worse troubles with their landlord, but it seemed like we didn't want to have to worry that much about something so fundamental as like, you know, whether something was going to go drastically wrong in our home at any moment. So after 10 months, they decided to move on from the crumbling building. They wound up a 10-minute walk north, shifting from Crown Heights to Bed-Stuy, from one gentrification hotbed to another. Emily and Allie met in college and both work for nonprofit organizations. Each room of their apartment is a clean, modern white box. It's all new construction from just a couple of years ago when a developer named Boaz Galad bought the building. Remember that name? Boaz is from Brooklyn Capital. We met him a few weeks ago. He has a big footprint in Bed-Stuy and proudly markets to hipsters. He tore down the dilapidated, tax-lean-burdened building and started over with something more contemporary, something better suited to new arrivals like Emily and Allie. They've been in the place for six months. Allie, who is white, likes to experience her new neighborhood on bike. She says it's the right pace to cover a lot of ground, but still take it all in. It's tricky because I feel very conscious because we are aware of the fact that by my very existence here... I provoke changes even if I am not intending to. And I'm black, and walking around in the neighborhood, I feel like people don't really look twice at me. Emily thought about moving into a Bed-Stuy studio several years ago, but ultimately decided against it. I definitely didn't know anybody who lived out here four or five years ago. And it was on my radar as a place that, like, oh, maybe if I was willing to go out a bit further, I could live this luxurious studio life. Um, And, yeah, I guess by the time I worked my way out here, that definitely wasn't the case anymore. So it's the two of them sharing a place and one other person. There are three bedrooms, so an opportunity to combine three incomes to make the $3,200 rent each month. Emily and Allie both talk about seeing so many families in the neighborhood. It makes them keenly aware of the crunch for bigger apartments like theirs. Allie also talks about what she calls gentrification grocery stores and how hard it can be to avoid them. At our old place, a new grocery store opened up two blocks away from us and was clearly targeted at young yuppies, I guess. And it sold single eggs. It was absurd and called Broccoli Farm. And I used to rail against a stupid gentrification grocery store. But it was on my way from the subway. And so if I needed apples... And it was open 24 hours. So I ended up going there, like, way more than I intended. There is one thing that they miss about their old place. The stoop. This newer building doesn't have one, so they don't find themselves outside as much. They say it makes it harder to meet people. They're still trying to figure out how exactly they fit into the neighborhood. I live here because I feel like this is what I can afford. I work for a nonprofit. At the same time, if I really wanted to be extremely rent burdened, I could theoretically afford to live somewhere else. And I am aware of the fact that a lot of people are very rent burdened living here where I live. But the fact is, I also like to go out to dinner occasionally. And buy coffee on my way to work and things like that. And so in order to do those things, I cannot spend more on rent. At the same time, I know that things that 
are coming to the neighborhood that are targeted at people like me. We are susceptible to those things. She and Emily say they both explore older shops and restaurants in the neighborhood, consciously trying to move outside the circle of new businesses targeted at gentrifiers. But it's not always easy. There's a Caribbean double shop up the block they've been eyeing for a while. They were both noticing the lines to get in. Then I yelped it. <laughs> what is the double shop? And it's sort of a Caribbean food breakfasty place, which we keep saying that we've been meaning to try, but we never get there. And it's strange because it's just not part of our routine. It's an indicator that our routine and the things that we like to do are out of sync with some of the other people in the neighborhood, which means that we don't interact with this particular piece of the neighborhood that seems to be a pretty essential piece of the neighborhood considering the line that is there on weekends. Ali underscores that she's someone who generally finds it easy to meet others. And it's easy to see why. She's friendly and open-minded. But she feels that there are forces of change in the neighborhood beyond her own existence. She feels like she's part of a system that she cannot control. I mean... I feel like I judge myself sometimes, but ultimately it's larger than me. It's a much larger system than me, and we're just trying to make it work with what we have. And Emily sees a pattern in the system, a very certain sequence of new arrivals in every gentrifying neighborhood. The way I think about the way that gentrification has happened in New York over the past 30 years, I think about the East Village, I think about Williamsburg, and I think about young people who don't have a lot of money, who are like kind of cool, going to a place where they can afford and making that place accessible and cool and sort of people following in with more and more money because it's cool now until the cool people can't afford to live there anymore. We've heard this a lot, this appropriation of a neighborhood's coolness to lure in new residents. Joshua in East New York talked about it, and I hear it all the time from real estate agents who bring high-end home buyers into a neighborhood by seducing them with the new arrivals who are already in place often young and artistic and white, and for the sake of increased capitalization, cool. And I, I don't think that we're those cool people, but I do think that economic driver of people who are not from this neighborhood, who don't look like the people who come from this neighborhood, but are looking for affordable housing, who are squeezed down from neighborhoods in other parts of the city, they come looking for something affordable, for more space or just more accessible rents to not be as rent burdened, that is how I see the first wave. And then once the sort of amenities start to come in, and I think that that wave is the one that people often vilify. I guess you sort of vilify the whole process because one leads to the other. But when it becomes more obvious is when like, okay, this is safe now because there are white people there because there are people who who look like me and who are successfully living there. It's sort of a proven experiment. And so now I can go and live a, a life that's more similar to what I'm used to in my old neighborhood. And it is this sequence that awaits East New York, an influx of Emily's and Allie's and others, as Joshua called them. So what does it mean for the creative minds and artists who are already in East New York? Not outsiders looking for cheap studio space and a brush with authenticity, but the artists who have been working to give value to their shared space to connect people with a sense of possibility and beauty. D.W. Gibson introduces us to one such maker. Catherine Green moved to East New York when she was 11 years old. With the exception of a few years at college, she's been in the neighborhood for most of the last 18 years. Like many people who live in East New York, Catherine is already bracing for the changes that are coming with the city's rezoning plan. 
she's determined to have a say in that development. It's really important to change our space and to take pride in where we're at and think even on a larger scale, you know, what is possible. This was the question on Catherine's mind several years ago when she realized that she was always going outside the neighborhood to take her kids to experience art of any kind. This fact bothered her deeply. So in 2009, she started Arts East New York. The organization does a range of activities, each strongly tied to a specific place. I walked from Pickin Avenue, I think maybe a 10-block span one day, and really noticed how many vacant lots were in that, that distance. And I thought, because I started to get a little depressed. Some of the blocks were like dirty and just smelled bad. And I realized halfway through the walk that I passed two schools. That means kids walk this route every day. Like, what does that say to them about where they live? What does that say to them about their community? What does that say about themselves? Catherine's 10-block walk catalyzed Arts East New York to start using vacant lots for large-scale art projects. Most of the sites are near intersections or areas with higher crime rates, like the lot at the corner of Pitkin and Berryman. So we did a fence art project with portraits of seniors in the neighborhood. Uh, So the kids had dinner with the seniors. They learned about them, their stories and whatnot over the five-month period. And then did these large portraits or paintings of them on the fence. So, you know... It's a little hard to knock somebody over the head when your grandma is looking at you, you know what I mean? So it's a little little different feeling than just walking by a vacant, dirty lot. Another empty lot that Arts East New York reimagined became Re-New Lots, an art and craft market with food, an outdoor seating area, and a stage for music and open mic nights. Shops and artists' studios are set up in shipping containers. There are about 11 containers and people drift in and out, shopping or just talking to artists about their work. Catherine's background is in clothing design. She brings a strong business sense to her artistic endeavors. You can feel that at Re New Lots. It's both cultivating creativity and jump-starting a hyper-local economy. I met her friend Rasu Jelani inside a shipping container at Re New Lots. Being in a capitalist society, and it has its benefits and it has its curses. He's an artist who's done a range of projects, including an oral history and portrait series in Bed-Stuy. He says Catherine's hit on something special by creating a space for people to experiment with creative business ideas on a manageable scale. Part of the thing that has awakened me as a businessman is this idea of social entrepreneurship. How do you enroll people, community? Empathy is part of your business model. You just don't make money because you can capitalize over every situation to make money. That's cool. We see how that's affecting the world. The world is dying because of that. I make money personally, but how am I investing my time, energy, and money back into the place I'm making money from? Rasu takes me outside to walk around the rest of Renew Lots, and as we do, he echoes Emily and Ali in Bed-Stuy, predicting that the change will play out in waves. Artists come to an area for cheaper rent, for inspiration, to create work, and then not too far behind is that aggressive, colonial, imperialistic gentrification movement. Rasu talks about a sense of frontierism that newcomers often bring. Whatever the diagnosis, there is always a false sense of discovery. The idea that a neighborhood is up and coming is inherently outsider. And while Rasu says it is mostly white gentrifiers that are guilty of this, it isn't always that simple. He heard as much over and over again while interviewing people in Bed-Stuy for his oral history, newcomers and old-timers alike. 
Then you have white people in the community who I've um, interviewed that said, I didn't come here to Bed-Stuy to get a whitewashed, gentrified Bed-Stuy. I came to Bed-Stuy for, you know, what was already here. The culture, the, the, the community-driven, the family-driven, the block parties, the know-thy-neighbor aspect of Bed-Stuy. You have kind of this assumption that, even if you believe it or not, in your heart, but mentally and intellectually, you may say, well, all white people that come to Bed-Stuy just want to kind of, like, co-opt it in. All black people in Bed-Stuy are not really trying to capitalize off of gentrification because they're natives and blah, blah, blah. Both assumptions are not true at all. So you do have people who are of my same complexion who are totally... Um, benefiting from gentrification and are exploiting people in the community and it's people from the other race that are doing the same thing. Reflecting on Bed-Stuy and the stories he collected there, Rasu suddenly takes a look around him and is transported back to East New York. He tells me that the city has already informed Catherine that they'll be developing the empty lot where we are standing. That means Renew Lots has got to go. Arts East New York will have to relocate the project to another site. The complications seen by neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy are already rolling into East New York. So next week, we go back to East New York as well. It's the first neighborhood that will be rezoned and reimagined under the mayor's affordable housing plan. Already, the tension between his goals and the profits developers are seeking is showing up. We'll look at how things stand now. But we'll also take a look at some out-of-the-box solutions for all of this. How do we all manage it as we look for homes and communities as New Yorkers? Actually, how do I handle it? That's next week. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WNYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded and mixed by Casey Means. Sean Carlson is our researcher with additional foreclosure research from Anakwa Dramina. That's me. Our associate producer is Amy Eason. Janet Babin contributed a recording to this episode. Aaron Cohen is the studio manager. Terrence Blanchard composed our theme music. Thanks to our digital team, including Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Kevin Friends, Frank Reynolds, and Annie Shields. D.W. Gibson, Rebecca Carroll, High Wright, and Jim O'Grady all contributed to the reporting and producing of this episode. Our editor and executive producer is Karen Frillman. Call us at 646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com. Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.